Welcome to the SMRC Lead Podcast, featuring epic supply chain lessons from our industry partners. I am your host, Donnie Williams, Executive Director of the Supply Chain Management Research Center and Clinical Assistant Professor of Supply Chain Management at the University of Arkansas's Walton College of Business. I'm excited to be joined today by Matt Connolly, who's a VP of Global Operations for the Clorox Company. So, Matt, thank you for being here and being on my podcast. Um, I'm excited about today because I've, you know, I met you last year and uh, learned so much about you and your engagement with the University of Arkansas has just been really incredible. And so I'm thankful for that. Uh, why don't you take a minute, introduce yourself to the audience, tell us what you've been doing for the past 29 years, I think it is now, right? Uh, and tell us how you ended up in supply chain. Well, thank you, Donnie. First of all, thanks for having me and hosting me here. I always enjoy our conversations. Um, it's hard to believe that in February, which is in a month, I'll have 29 years with Clorox. And that 29 years has taken me across at least a dozen different roles up and down the supply chain and even spent some time in sales and working on the business unit. Anytime you start your career, and someone told me this early on, it's a career path. And by path means sometimes it can take a twist or turn that you didn't expect it. But as long as you're being intentional along the way of where you want to grow and develop, that uh, at the end, you'll be happy with the outcome. So you've been in a lot of roles. Uh, you were just alluding to that. I actually want to key in on that word you just talked about, intentional. Uh, I think a lot of people miss this in their careers. Like, what does that, what does that actually mean for you to be intentional? When I first started my career, uh, it was in manufacturing. So I have a mechanical engineering degree from the University of Arkansas. And so uh, in a manufacturing environment, especially a very large manufacturing environment, there's so many different things you can work on. And I, I, I really wanted to make a difference early. And so I would sign up for any type of uh, project, any type of process improvement. And early on, I, I told myself, as long as I'm growing and developing, and I feel I can make a personal difference, then I would accept a project or I would uh, take a role. And it wasn't necessarily, uh, I had this vision of exactly where I was gonna be in almost 29 years. It was, I knew that if I was gonna continue to be fueled by, by being challenged and uh, by taking assignments that were difficult, that the end destination would be a good one. Interesting thing, I, I talk to my students a lot just about career progression and kind of planning out their, their career. One of the things that I learned a long time ago from, from a friend and tried to approach in my own, my own life, my own career is, you know, take the things that nobody else wants to do. Um, one, it'll make you a subject matter expert in something pretty quick that nobody else really knows about. But two, the learning that comes out of that will be enormous. Um, and so as you think about your career and the, the things that you've taken on, the challenges that you've taken on, what are some of the biggest key learnings that you've taken away over this 29-year career now that, that you still think, okay, this was, this was important to learn? I think what you said is, is, uh, has a lot of wisdom to it. What I, what I tell people is turn into the wind. Mm. So wherever the most difficult projects are, wherever the most difficult assignments are, go there. Find out where the fire is and, and go towards the fire. And what you'll find out is, again, that's, that's where your greatest growth and development is going to be. That's where your greatest impact to the company is going to be. And quite honestly, sometimes it might be lonely, which can be a good thing. So if you, if you become uh, an expert in something that people don't want to do, I think that's well said, or is very difficult or people don't have the experience, then that allows you to be unique. And in your career, you, you want to have some combination of being 
uh, interesting with your experiences, unique in some of your talents, and then obviously the underlying uh, tie a lot together is you want to be excellent. So I love the idea that um, you you kind of tie all this into a long arc, career arc with Clorox at this point. And, you know, one of the things that I love to talk about with supply chain professors who've been in one company for a long period of time is, you know, there there's this idea that's out there. It's a false idea. Well, if I stay with one company, I'm going to get bored. I'm going to get in a rut. Um, I may not be able to experience a lot of things, experience the growth. That hasn't been your experience. And it actually hasn't been the experience of a lot of people I've talked about that's been with one company. What can you talk about just your experience with Clorox in those different roles, particularly what's what's kept you there? Yeah, great point. Well, what has kept me at Clorox now, I'll, I'll start off with that is um, for the 29 years, Clorox has such a great culture. There's a, a respect for the for the individual and the people have been at the center of our strategy from day one. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we may have expanded that through the years. Um, you know, we, we are, are a sales and marketing company with a, with a tremendous supply chain and the consumer is always on our mind. The customer is always on our mind, but so are our team members. Uh, so are the folks that work up and down the supply chain and, and across the globe, but also our communities and, and, and continuing to focus on our, on our ever changing needs of our consumers and customers. So the reason why, aside from the respect that Clorox has and do the right thing being a core value is that that you're all, it's always, business is always transforming. And if it's not transforming, at least it's evolving. So Clorox has been around, this is our 108th year. So from 1913 to 2021, we have transformed uh, in years we're not transforming, we're evolving. And so through that, as the business transforms, then you're given opportunities to transform yourself as well. So I think that, you know, you're an engineer by trade. Um, and we know this part of engineering, you know, you think about Six Sigma, you think about, you know, lean manufacturing and all the different things that go in with that. It's kind of built into your blood, just kind of this continuous improvement cycle, uh, innovation. And so many people think about, well, Clorox, it's just bleach, right? <laughs> so, but you guys, you have a number of different brands that are under your umbrella that most people probably don't even realize are there. Like when I first started really looking at you guys, I had no idea Kingsford Charcoal was part of your uh, portfolio uh, and some of the other brands that you have. Um, what is it? How does Clorox maintain that innovation, innovative culture? Like, What do you do to continue to foster that? And how have you been able to gain competitive advantage on competitive advantages through that over the years? Yeah, innovation can come in many different forms. It can come in product innovation. So by being focused on uh, the consumer and the mega trends and what the consumer needs, that's going to drive your your product uh, uh, innovation, R&D, if you will. From a supply chain standpoint, having a, a spirit and a mindset of continuous improvement. So it is interesting. I go back to my time in college nearly 30 years ago. I had a professor that had spent the 70s and the 80s working in Japan for a uh, car manufacturer. And he had a course where the entire, I think it was called production engineering. Mm-hmm. I may have gotten that wrong, but he had a course that was focused purely on you will get you'll get better or you're going to get beat. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is it's about four years before Jack Welch wrote his book on get better or get beaten. And so his point was, that processes, results, it doesn't matter. You can take anything where you keep score. It is going to get better 
or it's going to get worse. It's not going to stay the same. And you have those few things, you know, early on in your career that really, really stick with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I brought that into, you know, my career and to my jobs. Now, what was what was fascinating is in a large manufacturing environment, you already have uh, uh, very strong uh, lean manufacturing or TPM or Six Sigma principles. And you realize quickly that the success of those programs is not the program. Mm. It's about the culture. So when, when folks try to to um, install Six Sigma or lean manufacturing and they really think of it as a tool or as a program, it's not going to last. It has to be a mindset that drives a cultural DNA fabric type level uh, commitment. So um, I actually teach our students about this. There's an article that I give them that um, talks about uh, total quality management and and in general, so total quality kind of brings in some of those principles of continuous improvement, lean processes. We know those from W.E. Deming, right? Uh, he hated the term, evidently, total quality management. And his point with that was that uh, these systems actually stop people from thinking. And, and the idea behind that is that if we rely on the system that, okay, we're just going to do what it tells us to do. We go through these step-by-step -step processes. We don't... We just rely on those to think for us instead of really thinking outside of that and, and creating a culture of continuous learning. And so is, has this been true for you? Is this what you've seen kind of happen where it's so easy to kind of fall into, well, this is the process that we follow that we stop thinking with that? That's interesting. Early in my career, I heard something and it was from our, our plant uh, quality manager and he had spent the majority of his time in, in operations. And so later in his career, he moved into quality. And he, he said, Matt, you cannot inspect quality into a product. Mm. And really what he was saying is by the time you do your audits, by the time you do your checks, you're uh, with the finished goods, it's too late. You've already created a problem. So therefore, you have to design the product in the process on the front end, mm. have controls in place, if you will, so that by the time you've made the product, you know, it already meets spec. And so it's a little bit, I think, what you're talking about as well. It has to be in how you do your work. It has to be a priority that you balance with, with uh, your output. So we're talking about innovation. We're talking about learning. Um, and again, you've got many roles, many years that you've been doing this. Um, what do you do with a, a new hire, someone that comes on your team, and you help them step into this culture? And it's not just natural to begin with, right? First, the first thing people want to do, tell me what to do, um, which can be good, but also it can be an impediment later. So how do you foster and keep that innovative culture kind of operating through your organization on a continual day-to-day -day basis? You hope that the, the culture you've established is strong enough so when you add people to the team or people retire that the culture stays in place. So focusing on the culture uh, is, is priority one in that respect. And then when you do have one-on-one -on -one conversations, trying to trying to make it clear on uh, on what that means for them. At the end of the day, people want to know, no matter where they are, how does this apply to my world? And there are a few things. Whether you show up day one or you've been there for you know for thirty years, in my case, you have to believe that anything and everything can be improved. Mm -hmm. The moment you you don't believe that is when you start to. Um, start to, to slow down on how you can make a, a, a personal difference. So this past year has put quite a bit of pressure on everyone, right? And so if you think about 2020 and what we've experienced with the pandemic, with COVID, the acceleration of uh, e-commerce, 
uh, pressures with that. Um, the workforce, kind of what you had to do to manage the workforce. Um, what have you guys learned through this? It's been a crazy year, right? Yeah, it's been a difficult year for, for everyone. The one thing that, that we have learned, or maybe it's, it's a good reminder, is just the power and the importance of the essential worker. Mm. We think about the supply chain as being you know, the flow of, of product and, and data information, but none of it happens without the essential worker. And, and fortunately, um, you know, we saw the power of that over the past year, and we continue to do so. So what's changed in the past year? So every company had to, you know, pivot a little bit, think, rethink how they do work, rethink um, how they protect their workers. Uh, but you guys deal with essential goods. <laughs> and, and, and certainly that has shifted quite a bit as far as the demand patterns, but then how you're getting those out. What's changed for you that you're saying, OK, this is probably going to be a long term shift that we've got to continue to adjust to? Yeah, what, one area that has changed on how we do work is we are a lot better at making decisions quickly. Mm. So if, if you had a leadership team that met once a month for eight hours to make decisions on, you know, the eight, 18 months out or, or even uh, zero to 12 months in particular, we've actually changed to having uh, more frequently but shorter leadership team meetings so we can make the decisions in the moment. So that is one area that, that mm. we have uh, up and down the supply chain become better at making quicker decisions. And that will stick for us from a how perspective. As you shift to the supply chain, I think the, the entire industry has learned that less is more. So for years we had skew uh, proliferation. And when uh, the pandemic hit, whether you're in the food business or in the disinfecting business, you saw companies making decisions to narrow down the SKU assortment to improve uh, or maximize throughput. And some of that will stick as well. I was always, you know, we think about SKU proliferation and my example to students continuously is let's go down to toothpaste aisle. Like, can somebody tell me what the difference is between all of these toothpaste? Um, but in the, in the product lines that you guys work with and the categories that you work with, that's still different. Like how much reduction did you have? And did it make a huge difference when you guys did reduce those? It did. Yeah. And in areas where we had uh, perhaps 400 SKUs in a given category, we quickly narrowed it down to the 100 most important. And That's that, pretty significant. It, it is significant. <laughs> and from a supply chain professional standpoint, it's things you've wanted to do for years. Right. right? Streamline. We want to take advantage of right? economies of skill. And so, <laughs> but, right. but, but the difficult thing about streamlining is trying to figure out what the value equation is back to the business. Right. And so, hey, you know, telling the general manager, go from 300 SKUs down to 50 SKUs or 100 SKUs, we think it's going to drive significant gross margin improvement. They'll go, what about my top line? We actually, over the past year, have had a good uh, lab example, a real life lab example of what that looks like. Right. And I think not only just us and, and our, uh, our peer companies, but also retailers. Hmm. So this is, this is fascinating to me because we're thinking about consumers and for years we've thought, okay, let's just give the consumer as much choice as they can. That's how we get our competitive advantages, right? We give them choice. Uh, we kind of think about mass customization in, in many regards, and this kind of bleeds over into different product categories. We're constantly kind of developing new products. 
Has that, do you think that's going to change as far as kind of how we think about product development moving forward? Is it, so that seems to be in direct conflict and I'm going to lean on you because you did sales too, right? Back in the day. So where do you start to see this conflict come up and how is that going to be resolved in, in this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'll wear both hats. My sales experience had in, in the supply chain. I, I think it's going to require us to uh, continue to always continue to innovate. You have to innovate. And that's a big part of our strategy going forward. And I'm sure everyone else's, but you also got to learn when to cut the tail mm. and cutting the tail has been the harder part, I think with a lot of CPG companies and perhaps even retailers. Mm. So doing both have to innovate. Otherwise yeah. you don't make 108 years, but you got to learn to cut the tail. And so what you mean cut the tail is you're just saying, okay, this product's not performing like what we expected it to. Let's just, drop it and let's reinvent, let's come up with something different that's better and that meets the customer's needs better. Yeah. If you, if you look at uh, like a shelf, there's only a certain number of, of SKUs you can have on a shelf. And so generally by, by velocities and, and, uh, um, and profit and, and top line, I think, I think over time, and this is my opinion, you're going to, you're going to see the shelf, um, as stores become redefined mm -hmm. to be both a store and maybe perhaps a micro DC, you could see shelves start to shrink. And if shelves do shrink, then you, you lose some real estate, which means you're going to have to make choices anyways. So the question becomes, do you make a choice as part of a business strategy mm -hmm. or do you make a choice because there's just less at the shelf to do so? I've been interested in this. I've been kind of following what's happening in the retail market. And as you know, a lot of retailers are struggling right now, you know, and, and, and certainly uh, some of your big boxes are customers, you know, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Kroger's of the world. And so, uh, but if you think about department stores and things like that, very different market. And what I keep hearing and reading about is this idea that because we can get things through omnichannel now, as a consumer, I can get things from multiple places. But there's this idea of the experience and the shopping experience with consumers looking at going into brick and mortar stores, shifting how things work. Are you guys seeing this from your product categories as far as a greater shift to um, e-commerce, delivering things straight to home? And maybe that's taking some of that market away from the stores that you sell in. And then with the stores, does that mean you've got to create, help the retailers create a different experience for the consumer that does come in? I know that's kind of just a very broad, vague question, but what I'm trying to get out there, what's changing in this retail environment that you guys are seeing that's playing out for you? That's a good question. And when I get asked that question, when I'm with a group or on a, on a call, I ask people, who's changed their ordering patterns as a consumer? Hmm. I know I have. Hmm. And so this is a area where we're actually solving a problem at work that we're also creating at home. So if I look at how I get goods today, some are delivered in my mailbox, some on my doorstep, some are online grocery pickup type stuff. Uh, some I'm actually in the store. And so I'm solving a problem that, that uh, I've, I've created, or maybe perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm solving an opportunity that I've created. I saw something the other day, which I think from a supply chain professional perspective, we got the design going forward and is that we need to be uh, agnostic on how we get our product to the, to the consumer. Mm. And, and so if you start looking at that and you say, I got to be agnostic, which means I got to figure out routes to market and the right packaging and the right SKU and assortment and response time. 
that's what we're all going to be working on as supply chain professionals. If you think about, I tell people all the time, uh, what we're going to be working on for the next, probably for, for the foreseeable future is how to solve for time compression. Hmm. So if you go back in the history, gosh, the past 20 years with uh, maybe longer than that, 30 years with uh, a manufacturer and retailer relationship, you know, started off tracking case fill rate, you know, I ordered X, how much did you ship me? And then uh, technology evolved to the point where you could track on-time delivery. And then uh, the combination of on-time delivery and fill rate is, is on-time and full. The next element that we're all going to be solving for is time compression. From the time the consumer placed the order, how long did it take before they got the product? And where that may be, doorstep, mailbox, you know, at the store, in the parking lot, wherever. There's an interesting dichotomy that happens with this. And... Um... This idea, so there's this race to be carbon neutral, safe for the environment, and you know, socially responsible, and all these various things. And then there's this race to make sure we can deal with time compression and get consumers their goods when, how they want them as quickly as possible. Those two don't always work together, right? They're many times in direct conflict with one another. How are you thinking about that now, managing global supply chain, global operations, and so I won't, in a minute, I'm going to read what Clorox has done just from a company's perspective and their goals and things like that. What kind of pressure is this putting on you managing supply chains to be able to balance the two? That is going to be something that we're going to solve, I think, as an industry. Certainly, it's, it's important to uh, Clorox, our, uh, our sustainability goals, our environmental uh, goals are are part of uh, what we've declared to to um, to Wall Street, you know, investors, if you mm -hmm. will. And so we're going to be trying to figure out how to balance the two. But I do, I, I think we're going to be doing it uh, not alone. I'll give you an example. If you think about um, packaging, so if we ship a product to a retailer, they open it up, and then you got what do you do with the corrugate because you're going to put the finished goods on the shelf. As, as we look at trying to create uh, circular supply chains, then we're going to need our retailers to help us uh, figure out that solve together. So I think sustainability is going to be something that is no longer a some of it. And from a supply chain standpoint, certainly we can all do our own part. But I think the big wins are going to be what we do. What do we do collectively from an industry so when we think about that, we're, we're thinking about multiple things. And so if I'm looking at, I'm just looking at your website right now, and there's certain areas that Clorox has said, hey, we want to make a difference here in the environment. It's going to be, it's going to cover operations. So you've got a goal for operations. You've got a goal for supply chain. You've got a goal to your point with products and packaging there. But when, when I think about this and I talk to my students about this, I'm thinking all of this is systemic, like my products and packaging is going to have a direct impact on how we manage our supply chains and vice versa. And, and how we think about our manufacturing, our operations is going to have a direct connection to our products and packaging and all that. So when you guys are talking about this as a company, how are you streamlining this to say, okay, we can make this difference in supply chain, honestly, supply chain operations, packaging, all of this has to work in coordination together. I have found that to be very difficult to to execute internally in an organization? How are you guys 
doing that. Yeah, you gotta you gotta break it down vertically and horizontally. So the uh, there's very specific things that we can do in supply chain, or there's very specific things we can do with a product or packaging change, and we're doing those. Then you have to step back and look at the end-to-end supply chain and figure out what can we do partnering with retailers. What can we do partnering with suppliers? And, and work at it. So it's a it's a it's a vertical, if you will, solve, but it's also a horizontal solve uh, concurrently. I, d- I do believe this is my own opinion that um, the horizontal solves are going to be the big leaps forward. That's where industries come together, meaning whether it be CPGs or or um, or even retailers trying to figure out you know how do we how do we solve something that's fundamentally different. We we've seen. That, that could be as simple as shared assets, mm-hmm. uh, which which exists today. It could be how do we improve velocities and how do we in, improve um, routes to market and flows. I, I think there's going to be in the future. I got to believe that you're going to see a lot more um, leveraging shared assets. Well, we've been talking about this. There's actually a theory about this that Dyer and Singh wrote about in 1998 called uh, the relational view, whereas it used to be. Uh, most people know the resource-based view, that he who has the most resources wins. The relational view is say, say, who can leverage relationships best in today's supply chain world wins. And so um, I would never forget when I was going through my own education and training in the PhD program, thinking about the relational view and how important it is. But it's not just a relational. Now there's some of our PhD students are looking at this network view. And so these, the relationships, the network applications that we have across organizations. And I'm thinking about this with you guys because I know of certain partnerships that you guys are working with and you're trying to solve problems together. How critical is this for you guys moving forward that, man, I really have to tap into the shared knowledge and the shared talent that we have across our supply chain network to be able to execute and accomplish these goals? I think it's critical. If you look at our suppliers and, and who we deem as tier one suppliers, it really doesn't matter if you're a supplier of raw and good or you're a supplier of manufacturing or you're a supplier of, uh, of warehousing. Those tier one suppliers, we, we come to the table looking for joint ideas where we can leverage uh, what they know or what they've seen around the world. A lot of the partners we have are global mm. and we, we want to make sure that the best idea wins and then we can quickly incorporate that idea. So I think it's critical. So one of the things that we I've, I've been talking with some executives about around this is, and, and I actually heard Shelly Simpson mention this to our class uh, one day, and she was talking about speed, flexibility, uh, agility. And, and generally in terms, when we think about flexibility, we're thinking about maybe, uh, you know, how we can do different things quickly and that type of thing. But she talked about the, the speed of decision-making and you were talking about decision-making earlier. Yeah. And uh, and one of the things that she said during that is that trust increases speed of decision. And I thought, what an interesting and profound statement that we really need to capture as far as across our supply chain relationships. Can you talk a little bit about what it takes to cultivate the kind of trust in our supply chain networks when you're dealing with so many players but there's also coopetition in place. And so you're learning from so many different places. But what does trust do and how do you cultivate that across your supply chain with your tier one, tier two suppliers in that way? Yeah, great question. Trust is important, not only in the supply chain, but also as you lead organizations and, and, uh, and work with retailers too. 
Tr- trust is all it is a core fundamental of 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 or foundation of trust is that you honor your commitments, mm. right? You 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 are consistent in honoring your commitments, and that if there's any time there's a surprise because anytime you manage the supply chain, there's going to be what I call bumps in the night. You communicate it quickly and you're very transparent about it. Trust is, is uh, earned over time and, and, and quickly broken if you don't honor your commitments. But if you get to a point where you're very consistent in your approach and how you treat and handle your, uh, your suppliers in this particular case, and uh, they feel like you're being transparent, they're going to reciprocate it. I love that. I think it's a lost art that we found of how can I be transparent in a world that seems to be that, particularly for large corporations, people are looking to find negatives. <laughs> people are looking to find and capitalize on mistakes or expose mistakes so much. Um, and I fundamentally believe that corporations are not inherently good or bad in and of themselves, ethical or unethical in and of themselves. I believe they are as ethical or unethical as the people leading them. And, um, and I think this is where trust comes from is that we, we know people It's still a relationship business. It goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning in your career. How important has the ability to build quick relationships been for you? There's a book called speed to trust. And, uh, I think that's a a good book, but also a, a good way to look at, at developing relationships. Trust is, um, if you look at one of the, if you look at the most important characteristic of a leader, it's integrity, integrity, mm. trust, you know, go hand in hand. Whether you're dealing with a supplier, your own employees, your team members, you know, your manager, um, customers, consumers, you have to be consistent. And I don't, I don't want to be uh, cliche. And sure. you can say, well, gee, you've been with Clorox 29 years, but do the right things part of our of our DNA and it goes back all the way to, to 19, 1913. And there was a, actually literally on the, uh, right before coming to do this podcast, we got some uh, survey results from our retailers. There's a very uh, strong national uh, company that I won't mention their name, but they do a survey of, of manufacturing companies, but it's looking at the, from the retailers lens back so they meet with all the retailers in the United States and they, you know, they do survey questions and they rank manufacturing companies and what's, you know, good and bad about them. And it was interesting. Uh, one of the most consistent themes that we had about us was our communication and transparency. And I've met with many customers, as you can imagine, over the over the course of 2020. Mm-hmm. And we are very transparent. And especially during a time when when there's a a need for more global disinfecting products and you have your own allocation, we, we will share what we believe to be true. And sometimes it's not popular. And, uh, but at the end of the day, people see that and they appreciate that. So actually, uh, for Clorox, the company, I'm just going to go through and kind of highlight some of these, you guys actually exemplify everything that you're just talking about there. So if I'm just looking at your list where you rank number 33 on Drucker's Institute, uh, of management top 50, top 250 list. Uh, uh, you win the 2020 company of the year and annual report of the year in the best in biz awards. Um, you're looking at number 33 in Newsweek's list of America's 400 most responsible companies. Um, you won the EPA, US EPA, uh, 2020 Safer Choice Partner of the Year Award. Um, 
I could go, I mean, I could go on here. I mean, there's, there's so many different things. Uh, recognize this first tier CPA Zickland index of corporate political disclosure and accountability, uh, award. Um, number six on diversity, uh, MBA magazines, 50 out front best places for women and diverse managers to work. Um, I mean, there's so many corporate reputation rankings. You're number one <laughs> on the Axios Harris poll. Um, and then of course, you know, Consumers love you guys, right? And so you're on those lists. So what does it mean to you to work for a company that is consistently recognized for all of these great attributes for a large corporation, right? And so this is really kind of in our society when corporations have been uh, skeptical, right? You guys continually shine in in these areas. What does that mean for you? As a a Clorox employee, um, I'm, I'm proud that uh, there are agencies that recognize what I see every day. And, and as an organizational leader, I'm happy for my team members to realize and, and, and know that others recognize what they're doing. And to me, there's, there's, there's been a really uh, important shift on purpose in, in society and, and with, uh, with companies. And our purpose is clear. And what people don't necessarily realize about Clorox, given the breadth of our portfolio, at the heart, we're a health and wellness company. Hmm. So disinfecting is about health and wellness. And so our purpose is to make sure our team members, our consumers, our cu- everybody, customers, people in the community can be well and thrive. And this, when you see your, your teams, your organization feel connected to that purpose, it's a really powerful thing. So that's a, I think that's probably the most difficult thing as a leader to accomplish. How do I help my team, those frontline essential workers that are doing the tangible work every day, how do I help them connect to that greater purpose, the why this business exists and how what they're doing impacts that? How do you approach that as a leader? What I try, what I try to do, and sometimes it's, it's harder than other times, is, is bring it down to the individual level. Let, let them try to help them connect what they're doing and how that fits in with the, um, the impact it has on the company. So there are times, though, if, if, if you are, sometimes it's easier than others. If you have a, a role where you can see the tangible results, and I'd say manufacturing is a perfect example. You are producing something and then you're seeing it leave. You know it's going to end consumer for a good cause. There, there may be uh, another area in the supply chain where it's not quite as clear, mm-hmm. but it is important for people to understand how, how, what am I doing and how does it tie to not only the company, company results, but what's the purpose of it? Mm-hmm. That's, that is absolutely, when you, when you can tie that together, engagement goes up. So what do you think is the greatest challenge in tying that together? So there's, there's actually a statement that um, we wrote about a couple of, well, maybe it was last year in a supply chain manager review article. Kate Vitasic actually came up with the idea called validating the value add. In other words, helping that employee understand the value they're creating to everything. That's hard to do all the time and consistently to, they stay motivated to work in that way. What do you do for that? Yeah, it, it can be hard to do, but you have to be, it has to be a priority. Mm-hmm. It has to be a priority. And, and sometimes it is, um, you, you, you figuring it out with them, whoever, whatever tasks they're doing. Other times you can, we, we call this voice of the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's important to know 
what, who, whatever I'm doing, what's the next step? What happens after me? Hmm. Sometimes that could be, you know what, the product goes on the shelf and the consumer uses it. Or sometimes I'm just another step in the supply chain. But if, if you do not know what is happening next, then it's hard to figure out exactly where your role is. And so thinking about those internal customers in, in that right. sense. So we all work for a customer and help serve those customers. I want to switch gears on you just a little bit. Um, uh, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to kind of come back to the pressure that supply chains are feeling now in general with e-commerce, the growth of Omnichannel, um, and what you're projecting for the next six, maybe 24 months. Uh, so much has changed over the past year, the acceleration of digital uh, the, just the compression, the product SKUs that you were talking about being reduced. And, and while those are all many times good things and that we can adopt new technologies, we can do so many different things that maybe we've been wanting to do, there's certainly a lot of pressure that's coming to. What are you seeing that's going to be there that you guys are really have your eye on right now? So, okay, we're trying to get prepared for this. Well, there's in 2021, there's, there's optimism that, the uh, the supply chain became the global supply chain became disjointed. Mm. So whether it be at the country level, at the global level, if you look at what's going on with ocean freight right now, so there's optimism that over the next you use the word next six months is that the supply chains will now become better in sync than they have been in at least over a year. So that's a foundational. Also, the the, the beauty of um, of the power of the supply chain, and especially as uh, there's been an acceleration on this omni-channel approach. In fact, I read I read some publications that that uh, during 2020 the adoption of omni-channel has uh, meaning how people the, var- the variety of ways people receive and their, their goods has gone 10 years into the future. Mm-hmm. And so, with that, there's opportunity. And as our, as our retailers look at leveraging the supply chain as part of their brand promise, it becomes more important. And what I tell people, and, I, and, and it's a, it helps with bringing supply chain professionals into the, into the field, is the supply chain has moved from backstage to center stage. Mm-hmm. And it really is becoming a lot more um, customer and consumer noticeable and so how do, how do we continue to uh, go down that path where it is, it is value added to the product? In the past, you would think of, of innovation being about the product. Innovation is all about the experience. It could be product. It could be packaging. It could be how I received the goods. And so I, I think you're going to see a lot more investments in the supply chain, whether it be from CPG companies or startups, I think you're just going to see a lot of movement. There's also a recognition that the supply chain is is no longer just the, the flow of goods. Mm. It's a flow of data. Mm. And so for us in particular, over the past 12 months, this emphasis on eliminating data latency has, has moved to the forefront. So does that, in, in your mind, looking toward the future, is it changing kind of the nature of the skills required to work in the supply chain. So how is what we've traditionally known as a supply chain professional going to evolve moving forward? Yeah, this one of the things that I, I share with, with folks to make a point. Um, every time you make a point, you want to make sure it also makes sense. <laughs> right, and I'll, and I'll right. try it here. In the past, you would say I'm in 
I'm in manufacturing or I'm in logistics or I'm in, you know, customer service or I'm in, you know, um, uh, transportation, warehousing. What I hope people think is I am in the supply chain. I happen to, you know, lead transportation. I'm in the supply chain. I happen to be in manufacturing. And I, and I do think it's going to continue to shift for folks to understand the supply chain and, and where they where they fit. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you look at over the past uh, year, those supply chain professionals that truly had a good understanding of the end to end supply chain, they they're the ones that thrived in trying to figure out how to get through the global pandemic with all the obstacles. Mm. Those those that did not have uh, a wide uh, variety of experiences and skill sets. They, they played their part, uh, but but it was uh, probably a little more difficult. You know, I've talked about a little bit in the past about the changes needed in our approaches to forecasting, kind of particularly as it relates to uh, partnering with service providers in terms of volume and cost. I heard you allude to it earlier uh, uh, in the podcast. Um, you know, I've heard you really kind of like this. This could be a game changer if we can solve some of this. What do you mean by that? Like, why is this so important? This kind of what's happening with forecasting and volume and cost and kind of all those different attributes with that. Coming out of the global pandemic, we're going to see supply chain resiliency, supply chain flexibility become a lot more embedded in the design. Mm. And you, you want to do that in a way that doesn't add cost to the end consumer. And one way you can do that, it, it starts with getting the right data. So you're going to, we're going to see a continued shift to more things that are around demand sensing mm. so that you can see things happen a lot earlier than you did in the past. So you can react quicker than you, than you could before. So when I talked earlier about trying to solve for time compression is everywhere in the supply chain. So immediately when you start to sense something happening uh, at the consumer or customer level, you've got to start responding. Is, there, is it a real signal? Is it not? And respond pretty quickly. So I actually kind of, you know, we teach basic fundamentals of forecasting, obviously, through the supply chain program. And I think every good program is out there doing that. Um, are those still relevant? Yes. Because that's what a lot of people say. Oh, you just need to ignore all this other stuff. you got to do data. you got to understand you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and all this is going to do everything. Why does a supply chain professional still need to know these basic fundamentals of forecasting and inventory management? A lot of people will think that the supply chain is is about the what. You know, I, I know the pieces. I can see the pieces of the supply chain, and that's great. But it's also about the how from a professional standpoint. I tell people all the time, I know the rules of basketball. Mm. I know the what doesn't mean I'm any good at it. <laughs> so there's a what and a how. What, when you have the ability to understand how the supply chain works and then you couple it with technology, that becomes a force multiplier. If you purely rely upon the technology, then uh, that can be fine. But every once in a while, it can, it, it can cause a problem. So you've still got to be able to think. Still got to be able to think. And still yep. got to be able to understand consequences and yep. systemic effects, right? And so that's that's what we're looking at. If I were going to give you kind of an, this idea of, hey, I'm going to give you a 60-second soapbox. Stand up on it 
and talk to my students. What should they know about supply chain, the opportunities industry, and what type of student they would make a really good fit for this particular industry moving forward? What would you say to them? I'll go back to a comment I made earlier in the podcast. The supply chain has moved from the backstage to the front stage or center stage. And when that happens, it it means a combination of things. One is you're going to continue to see more innovation and more investments in the supply chain. It's going to become more uh, relevant and more part of the experiences of the consumer. And so it becomes a lot more tangible to, to everyone. So you always, I believe, you always want to to enter a career field where it's growing and it can make a difference and much innovation is ahead. So that is certainly the supply chain profession. Individuals that do well are, are those that, and this has a little bit of my nature in it, those that are very curious, those that are a little bit adventurous and are are interested in doing a variety of roles that may not seem like they're related, but at the end of the day, it gives them a better picture of the end-to-end supply chain. So if I go back to my, my, my personal experience, started out in manufacturing, have run you know, logistics, have been on the business, have met with many, many customers. And so it, it allows it allows me to to uh had a variety of roles that Quite frankly, I almost felt like I was working for different companies, and that's kept it very interesting. And I've I've uh, grown and developed personally. I'm going to do something different with you on this podcast than I've done with any other podcast guest at this point. I just gave you 60 second soapbox to students. Let's shift it. Give me a 60 second soapbox to the industry. What would you say to the supply chain industry right now? As you've thought about the past year and you're thinking about the future, what are some things that maybe concern you that say, hey, we really should begin to think about this more holistically moving forward? My first uh, comment to the industry would be thank you. Hmm. Uh, as a consumer, as a, as, a, um, as a member of the profession, thank you. It's, it's been a rough ride in 2020 and the supply chain professionals up and down the supply chain have just been, been amazing. Hmm. And, and as we look forward, I, I really believe as all of us uh, prepare and plan uh, for the future, leveraging innovation, leveraging technology, we're all going to get individually as companies get better, stronger and faster. I do think we have things ahead that are going to re- require us to be more connected Environmental and sustainability efforts is a good example. Trying to solve for time compression, trying to leverage uh, assets so that we can become you know quicker and, and find uh, leverage scale and routes to market. I think when when we as a profession can figure out how to work across uh, company boundaries, we're gonna work, it'll be amazing what we can get done. So Matt, I want to ask you one more question. So if we're thinking about students who are about to enter the workforce, uh, making plans for early in their career. Um, obviously, you've done a lot of different roles throughout your career, so you, you have a lot of experience in doing different things. But what would you give, what kind of advice would you give students, young professionals that are in their career on how to really be successful moving forward in the supply chain industry? 
I would encourage people, especially early in their career, to get as much variety of, of experiences that they can, different roles in different parts of the supply chain. Now, at the same time, balancing that you always want to be known for something. So you may have a variety of different experiences, but you need to ask yourself, what am I known for? What do I believe others see in me as being an expert? You, what you don't want to do is have a variety of experiences and then folks can't really say, oh, you know what? You're an expert in, well, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And if, if you look at both of those, the breadth and depth of experiences, then you're, then you're going to build a very strong foundation for a, a career in the supply chain field. So can you give me an example maybe of yourself or someone else of what you mean by that? Like being, being known for something in that? Yeah. What I would, what I would do is, is I, I talk to people and I say, if you were to write out what your brand is, mm -hmm. you as an individual start off by, by filling in the details. And if it's easy, here's what my personal brand is, meaning what, what I, what I believe I'm good at and what others see in me and the feedback I have and, and what others uh, share with me. If that's clear, then, then you're doing it. You're doing it right. If you have trouble answering that question, then perhaps you, you really haven't um, latched on to something that people associate with you. All right. So, Matt, I've got to do to you what a professor does. Give me your brand. What's your, who is Matt Connolly? The, there's, there's a couple different elements to this. I would say from a value standpoint, I would, my, my uh, continued aspiration is always to be a values-based leader mm -hmm. and one that can uh, lead and grow and build organizations with the end customer in mind, whether that's the consumer or a customer or somebody else in the supply chain. And over time, what has also happened, given the breadth of my roles and experiences, is I've played in every part of the supply chain. Hmm. And so I've been able to make um, impacts that perhaps might, maybe not even a supply chain professional would have had the background to do so. There's really just this kind of idea with that, you know, if you think about your career, I think all of us, you know, if you think about leadership in general, the real basic idea and fundamental foundation of leadership is someone who has influence. And how do you think about your own leadership development? So there's a lot of people that may have a lot of breadth of experience in a lot of different things. But that doesn't make them a leader. What did you pull out of those experiences that you would say, man, this really helped me develop and understand who I wanted to be as a leader? The, the most one of the things I really think folks should understand is um, that there's a difference between being a manager and a leader, mm -hmm. and and they're both important, but they're different. A manager is good at prioritizing and optimizing what they have and making it efficient in uh, in driving uh, the organization. A, a leader is all about influence and pushing the boundaries and thinking differently and leaving a mark that feels a little bit different. So what I, what I tell young leaders is what, when you, when you leave a role, what was your legacy? And so you need to enter a role thinking about what your legacy is going to be because your legacy is bigger. If you're a leader driving change, influencing, developing followership, 
versus uh, if you just kind of managed it efficiently over time. I actually love that idea if I'm thinking about it from an early career aspiration for a student coming in. If I think going into a role, what's the legacy that I'm leaving coming out of that role? Then two things should actually transpire, right? One, I should master that role. (laughs) But two, as I'm leaving it, then I should be able to fill that role behind me and and leave a trail, a legacy of someone else. I'm I'm reminded of uh, uh, the book, Turn the Ship Around by Captain David Marquette. Have you read it? Yes, I have. Uh, Just that idea behind that is that when can you tell that a leader is really effective after he's gone, Yeah. right? Does does it continue to uh, succeed and excel? If If it does, then that's a mark of a good leader. If it doesn't, then the leadership may not have been that good. Have you experienced that as well? I have. And, and one area that I look for is when you're leading an organization and you have a leadership team and when someone moves on, either they get promoted or they leave, how well can that organization continue to thrive without you being there? I took a, I took a course years ago. Um, it was a executive tied to an executive MBA program, but it was only, it was only a few courses and they said this, if, if your leadership team cannot function without you for you know, days or weeks or months, then you did not grow and develop them strong enough. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting point. Because a, a lot of times you think, wait a second, I'm the leader. I need to be there to make decisions. Uh, no, that's actually the opposite. You're, you're the leader. You're there to empower people and grow and develop and allow them to make the decisions that uh, they should be making. And so th- there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of um, paradigms in leadership. There's a lot of things that aren't necessarily intuitive. And one is being a leader doesn't mean that you have to be present. It's how well does your team do when you're not present because you, you coached and developed them and developed that element of trust. So, Matt, we have a lot of students that listen to this podcast, hopefully, right? They've got to in my class. I require it. Uh, But many of our seniors and juniors, really, they're doing internships, getting ready to start their career. What are some of the key things that they should think about as they're considering job offers, kind of going through that process? How do you know which company is the right company for you? It's, it's easy to get caught up in, in the things that are obvious, like brands or, or um, uh, how well-known they are. But I tell people, make sure that you understand the values of the organization. Mm-hmm. And do those values match your values? And from there, also understand what the purpose is of not only uh, the role, but the company because if, if you are going to start your career with a company that has uh, strong values and they match you and you can clearly understand what your purpose is and what the company's purpose is, then you then you perfect that becomes a force multiplier as you pick up the other the work, you know, your growth and development, the coaching and and whatnot. But make sure that you understand what the values are and what the purpose is. I think that's some great advice for our students. And so um, as you begin to think about that, I I would presume that's why you've been with Clorox for so long. I mean, you've lived that, right? Yeah. I tell people I'm proud of, I'm proud of so many things at Clorox and have been for many years, 
But the fact that people are at the center of our strategy and have been for my entire career, that's one of the key reasons why I have continued to uh, my career. Well, Matt, I want to just thank you for this, what we would call epic discussion. Um, And a special thanks to our audience for taking the time to listen. On behalf of the Walton SEMRC, we are delighted to lead with you as we learn, engage, address, and develop all things supply chain to lead a world of commerce from Northwest Arkansas. Have a great day.